You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning, UBC. Good morning. Ooh, great. Uh, my name is Carrie Fisher, and I'm so proud to get to be here with you today. I want to say that I wrote most of this sermon toward the first half of the week, and it's kind of lighthearted and, dare I say, funny at times. But of course, I want to acknowledge that this has been a heavy, if not devastating, week for some in the country and for some of us. And it can be hard to know what to do when the world seems so fractured and frightening. And one of the things, one of the things that we do, not the only thing, and potentially not even the most important thing, but one of the things uh, that we do as people of faith is to come together each week to slow down, to acknowledge, to cry out, to listen, to remember, to re-energize, so that we have some rest and community and fuel to replenish us for whatever is required of us in the week to come. So thank you for being here at UBC today, no matter how the last week was for you. I'm thankful that you're here and that we're here together. Okay, so as some of you know, I'm a social work educator. In fact, I just finished my 10th year teaching social work to undergraduate and sometimes graduate students. And though many of my classes have shifted over time, the class I've taught every semester for the last decade has been social work field education. And luckily this is one of my favorite classes to teach because this is the place in the curriculum where students begin to start working with real, in the flesh human beings. And we've prepared them the best that we can up until that point. They've read social work core values, they've heard testimonies from marginalized individuals about the impact of oppression on their lives. They've practiced using specific conversational and problem-solving skills with classmates who've done their best to pretend to be 80 years old or recently laid off or a parent struggling with their teenager's sexuality. And I'm so glad they have the opportunity to practice before they go into field internship. I think it's right and good for them to try on the skills before we send them out into the wild. But sometimes when they start working with these real human clients and a combination of nerves and insecurity and perfectionism overcome them, it is as though they have forgotten not only every skill they've learned in school, but also just every social grace ever intuited by almost any individual who's ever encountered another person. <laughs> It's like they get human clients, but then they themselves have become extraterrestrial all of a sudden. And each year I read transcripts of conversations they have with these clients, and without fail, a few of them, even from otherwise outstanding students, read like this. Student, can you tell me why you came in today? Client, um, I guess every pet I've ever owned died tragically yesterday, one after another in quick but painful succession right before my very eyes on my birthday, which is leap day. <laughs> Student, I see, okay, and what is your address? <laughs> Student, 
What brings you to our agency at this time? Client. Well, I've been short of breath all weekend ever since my racist, sexist, ableist, heterosexist, transphobic, xenophobic, ill-humored boss got promoted to a position for which I was better qualified, credentialed, and respected. Student, thank you for that. And your date of birth, please? <laughs> I try to impress upon these emerging co-laborers that I want them to insist on making their initial interaction with a client be one that signifies that they see their humanity first and above all else, regardless of whatever intake form or assessment tool is handed to them by agencies or supervisors or whatever. I tell them to triple the amount of empathic statements they think they should be using. And I'll be honest, I get angry if the year progresses and I'm still seeing these robotic, cruel-seeming responses to the courage and at times pain that clients bring with them into first interactions with those of us who are in the quote, helping professions. So similarly, I gotta say, we have a strange text on our hands here today. One where I'm kind of tempted to ask Jesus to go back and try again, loving kindness wise. <laughs> I'm gonna read it for you one more time. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow, to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So yeah, I don't care much for a let's keep it moving enough with your dead family type of God. There is enough mean-spiritedness in the people and the politics of this planet. I don't need it additionally from my deity. And more important than what I believe I do or don't need, when I look at the whole of who Jesus is, according to the recordings that we have of his life, the responses in this text that show a first day intern level of human compassion does not quite add up for me. So I have to presume we're missing some parts of this puzzle here or that we need to turn the story upside down and shake it out a bit to find the truth that's waiting for us within it. Could it be that Jesus is not, as it sounds, eviscerating these would-be followers for putting family first or for dutifully wrapping up loose ends but rather that he is offering something to them in this moment. I mean, perhaps the offering is in fact admonition, not just in the cruel tones I've projected onto it when I've read it over the years. Um, as I was wondering what might be going on here, I thought about something from my own life. You know, I'm a pretty extroverted, person. And better stated, I'm an intimacy enthusiast. My close friends make fun of me because I can't really get my head around doing things that don't eventually lead to soul bearing of some variety. 
I think I might have said as much on this stage before, but it's true. Um, and it's as evidenced by the litany of interpersonal games that I've created over the years. I think I'm going to show them to you here. As one second. Okay, so here are just the first six games I made up that came to my mind when I was quickly thinking about them in the sermon. I'm sure there have been more over the years, and if you really pay attention, you can't really see the taglines here, but um, I'll read them to you. You can probably suss out a theme that's going on. So uh, the first one was from elementary school, who would you rather go with? And uh, it's, it says, a game of attraction that will show you who you really are. And then maybe like high school or college, we played out of the five of us. It says, a game of group characterization that will show you who you really are. And then evidence. This is a game I actually physically constructed. And it says, a game of false opposites that will show you who you really are. <laughs> and fundamental difference, a game of comparison that will show you who you really are, true middle, a game of rating and ranking that will show you who you really are, and finally, on the other hand, a game of reconsidering who you really are. <laughs> so I'm telling you all this at this moment in the sermon, not just as a brag, but also to say that you can imagine I have a lot of practice discerning when someone all of a sudden develops a conviction that keeps them from coming along with me on whatever journey to the center of the soul I've tried to recruit them to. When my messiest friend becomes suddenly compelled to stay home and clean out her pantry, claiming that the kids really need structure, or when my most energetic friend chooses the night of my party to prioritize napping, claiming rest as resistance, stuff like that. We all do this sort of thing sometimes, right? When someone we aren't that close to needs help moving, or when we're asked to correct a colleague's inappropriate behavior, or to join a public protest against an injustice that we aren't so sure we even completely understand, we all catch conviction at convenient moments sometimes. And maybe that's what Jesus is referring to in this text. Maybe these would-be followers are not being honest with him or with themselves in these claims of familial and professional duty. And so perhaps he is rebuking the disingenuity of procrastination posing as piety. When we tell someone to please wait patiently for us to catch up, and pause for us to figure out whether we will get on board with their protests, their pronouns, their rights, we should expect to be admonished. When we leave images of God all around us saying, foxes have holes, birds have nests, I have nowhere to go, we need to be admonished. But I think I've heard of that reading of this text before, so I want to see what else we find as we turn it around looking for new light. Maybe Jesus was not providing admonition in this moment. Maybe he was offering vision. Because when our eyes are cloudy with tears and when we are weary from lack of rest, we sometimes think that turning back is the answer. But the truth is, no amount of list making or graph drawing, bill paying or hand wringing will get the fields plowed if that is the job that needs doing and if yours are the hands that need to do it. And no amount of going back home will make the dead undead. I like this definition of vision. 
the ability to think or plan in the future with wisdom and imagination. I like that it invokes thoughtfulness and creativity when we might otherwise go reaching for certainty and control. There was a song I loved in college by Sarah Groves, and I know that's not really a cool enough reference for UBC, but it's what's true for me. Um, it was called Painting Pictures of Egypt, and I still sing it to myself when I'm in seasons of transition. I've been painting pictures of Egypt and leaving out what it lacked. The future feels so hard and I want to go back. But the places that used to fit me cannot hold the things I've learned. Those roads were closed off to me while my back was turned. Sometimes it's hard for me to cross new thresholds to turn my face toward Jerusalem. And it doesn't matter how bad or unfulfilling the past may have been, because I am not looking for resurrection in those moments. I am content with comfort, even if it is counterfeit, even if it is death. So maybe we need a God who reminds us of the future, like a friend who shakes us awake, like a partner who gently shifts our head so that we can see what's next. Or, according to one interpretation of this text by Marin Grossman, maybe Jesus was providing permission in this moment. Permission to move on with one's life, even when the places you used to live and the people you used to love and the selves you used to be come beckoning. Because sometimes we're not lacking vision. We can see the future. We just aren't sure we're allowed to go there. I've been reading a lot lately about boundaries and family and the rigidity that some of us were given and told it was true religion. And those of us at UBC might feel all deconstructed and reconstructed and evolved, and we might be. But I know that for me, my five-year-old self and my 15-year-old self and all the other ages of me all remain inside of me like rings of a tree. And those most interior rings, they impact all the rest of me. I hear the voices of old guides who I no longer respect, but who I want to make proud anyway. I feel the eyes of old institutions upon me, and though I no longer ascribe to some of them, it doesn't mean I don't still fear them. And I'm just a mostly privileged person. No persistent abuse or cult-like fundamentalism or anything like that. But I still find myself in need sometimes of permission to step into brighter and warmer light. Maybe Jesus was saying, you do not have to go back and serve families or structures that are not good, that are not for your good. It's okay to just move on. Uh, a long time ago on a football documentary that my family and I were watching, a player came off the field after botching a new route or something like that during training camp. And when he got to the sideline, his coach said something that we thought was really funny. He said, <laughs> um, he says, I told you not to forget. You forgot to remember. Remember? We say it to each other sometimes in my family when we make life, life gaffes, uh, something that we swore we were going to try differently next time. It's okay, somebody will say, when we admit our failure, you forgot to remember. 
Galatians 5.1 was one of the other lectionary texts for today, and it has a similar message. It is for freedom, it says, you've been set free. Don't go back to the yoke of slavery. And it gives us some examples, idolatry, fornication, theft, and these may well be the things that are keeping some or all of us imprisoned. But I talk to a lot of people about a lot of intimate things, as you may recall. And it seems to me that the yokes we stay tethered to are just as often philosophical. One right way, perfectionistic and punitive yokes. We forget to remember there's a wideness in God's mercy. So as we enter or have entered or are entering that new normal in our world, in our church, in our own personal lives, I wonder, as I'm legally bound to do at this point in the sermon, if there is some admonition or vision or permission we have need of in this moment. Is there something we keep putting off, forgetting about, avoiding because we know it will be hard and costly, even as we simultaneously know it is good and right and needed? Or is there something we keep looking back at, defaulting to, some area where we have had a lack of imagination, even though we are created in the image of a creator and a resurrector? Or is there some idea, some rule, some person that hurts us, that no longer has authority over us, but that we fear we cannot go on without? If so, might I suggest today that we let go of our unpious avoidance, of our uninterrogated routine, of our unhelpful nostalgia. Might I pray for us that we remember to remember as we move into the future together, our faces forward, our hands to the plow, undeterred, even in uncertainty. Amen.